0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, Quillette's Canadian editor. Michael Shermer is perhaps best known to listeners as a prolific book author, as founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, and as a famously effective debunker of frauds and charlatans. But more recently, Michael Shermer has been exploring broader themes, including free speech, American politics, and the radicalization of the social justice movement. In January, Mr. Shermer traveled to Toronto to speak at our Quillette social, and portions of his speech were contained in a previous podcast episode. Before that event, I got the chance to catch up with Mr. Shermer for a one-on-one interview. And if it sounds like the conversation took place in a hotel room, you're not mistaken, as that's the best we could do on our guest's tight travel schedule. While the audio is not studio quality, I hope you will enjoy these excerpts from our conversation. I want to ask you about a book that came out almost 20 years ago that you co-wrote. It was called Denying History. And to a large extent, it was based on, on interviews that were done with Holocaust deniers. You interviewed them in a very factual way. You were trying to find out why they think these, these horrible, strange things they think. Could you do that book in the same way today
2: I think so. Okay, I think I probably would get stigmatized on social media, something like that, but I don't care. (laughs) Uh, You have to take that attitude uh, when you're dealing with social justice warriors, because otherwise you wouldn't get out of bed, you wouldn't do anything out of fear of being attacked. So, yeah, Denying History, um, Alex Grobman and I wrote that in the late 90s, well, mid, mid to late 90s, when... Shortly after I started Skeptic Magazine, uh, the Holocaust deniers were kind of on the scene. Now, in terms of like giving people a platform, the question is, is this a legitimate claim, or not legitimate, but is it is it in the popular media culture and so on? And, and in that case, it was. Schindler's List had just come out. They had just opened the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and these guys were making inroads on uh, television shows. Donahue had uh, David Cole and Bradley Smith on, and... And David Irving was, you know, doing his $1,000 challenge about uh, proof of Hitler's order. He's the historian, the British historian. He was pretty famous. So I thought, yeah, okay, we should take these guys on. Now, when I say take them on, I, I mean, what are they arguing exactly? What are their claims and why are they making them so that was the thesis of the book uh, who says the holocaust didn't happen and why do they why do they say it and so i just point blank asked them you know i just got to know them Turns out you know i live in southern california so their their main headquarters the institute for historical review is in costa mesa which is just down, down the street from me so i went and got to know the, i went to their offices and met mark weber and their staff and so on and Then I met with David Irving, and I came to Canada to meet with uh, Ernst Zundel. And I've been a free speech advocate my whole life, and I was appalled to find out that what he was doing was illegal in Canada. And it turns out it's illegal in most Western countries except the United States. So one reason Holocaust denial is an American phenomenon, because it's one of the few places where you're, you won't get locked up for, say, for saying you think the Holocaust didn't happen, or whatever your version of it is. So I, in that sense, I'm kind of defensive of their right to go ahead and make their crazy claims, and that the proper response is just to let them say it and then debunk it, just respond.
1: I had always correctly been told that Holocaust deniers generally were anti-Semitic, as indeed they are, But they also have this host of other strange ideas, which I had not discovered until I read your book. I think it was in your book that I read that Ernst Zundel, like other Holocaust deniers, believes in a fantasy universe of of Hitler going off to Antarctica, and they weave very strange ideas. It isn't just anti-Semitism. Were you surprised to to hear about these things?
2: Yeah. Well, we, we at Skeptic kind of specialize in conspiracy theories, you know, so I... I, I thought it was rather interesting that they also glom onto to some of these conspiracy theories of course the, the biggest one is that you know the Jews are the traditional enemy as they call them the Jews are you know running the media and, and have all the of uh, these powerful organizations like the Illuminati and and the New World Order and so on that these are all Jewish secretly Jewish run organizations and uh, you know their their thing was that uh, you know the Holocaust, denial claims are all wrapped up in a a larger worldview. So one of their motives, other than just blatant anti-Semitism, as you note, um, is to kind of expose to the public what is really going on underneath the scenes. And by uh, showing that the Holocaust didn't happen the way we think it did, you can then uh, pull the veil back and show that they're also doing all these other things.
1: Were you criticized at the time for giving a platform for people who, who think these things?
2: There were some Holocaust historians and scholars who thought it problematic that I was giving them a platform. I mean, we, we put um, we put them on the cover of Skeptic Magazine. <laughs> I appeared on uh, some shows with them. I was on that Donahue show. I debated Mark Webber in a public venue sponsored by his magazine. Uh, to me, I'm after the people that wonder if there's something to it. Now, I know I'm not going to change the minds of David Irving in these in, in these hardcore Holocaust deniers, but, you know, there's a lot of people that do wonder if, you know, hey, maybe there is something to that thing about the gas chambers, or maybe it wasn't six million, maybe it was three million, and, you know, maybe the the allies did this bad thing too, and, you know, the moral equivalency argument, and so to me, if you just say, you know, David Irving says, well, you know, they, they couldn't possibly have killed a million people in gas chambers because, and then he makes his argument, and if your response is, well, you're an anti-Semite, that's not a response. What is the response to his claim about how gas chambers work and how long it takes to burn a body? And He's got all this stuff. And you actually have to know something about it. Now, that requires some uh, heavy lifting. You have to actually study the subject. Most people don't have time to do that, so that's our job. But but the proper response is, here's the claim, here's the answer. Here's the claim, here's the answer. And then the reader can go, oh, I see, so this is a bunch of bullshit.
1: It is tempting to just say you're an anti-Semite. And in fact, they are anti-Semites. Yeah. But that if that is the end of your response, then people in the middle are going to say, "Well, you haven't really debunked what they've said."
2: Or just ignore them. I mean, if you you don't have to respond, you you can ignore them. But this is what I do for a living. So, I mean, I even came to Irving David Irving's defense in I um, think uh, the year he was arrested at the airport in Austria in Vienna um, for. Merely for thinking a bad thought, because Holocaust denial is under hate speech, it's illegal in Austria, and he went there to give a speech, and uh, it was kind of publicly announced, so it was clear, and they nabbed him at the airport, and he was put on trial, and he was jailed for I know, like a year or something. I wrote a letter to the judge saying, this is wrong, he didn't even give the speech, so this is a thought crime, I find that appalling.
1: My experience as a Jew living in North America and as somebody who tends to monitor conspiracy theories on the web and that sort of thing is I actually think that Holocaust denial was more of a problem 20 years ago than it is now.
2: Yeah, I I think it's not... Well, in, in small local pockets like they used to have in the 90s, I think that's largely attenuated. I am concerned about the anti, larger political anti-Semitism in the Middle East, the attacks on Israel, uh, the BDS movement. These are like Western and American liberal progressives. Who really are, are are skirting close to anti-Semitism in these attacks on Israel? I mean, it's one thing to to kind of have a political debate about the Middle East, but this th- what we're seeing now is going beyond that. Do you
1: feel that the BDS movement and movements like it, which specifically target the Jewish state, are maybe animated more by displaced Marxism than by displaced anti-Semitism?
2: Mm, that's a good that's a good question. I think there's an element of both in there.
1: Everybody complains about uh, oversensitivity and people being deplatformed. The exception is for people who own their own platforms. You're obviously prominent, and you have this magazine, Skeptic. Do you find yourself less targeted by people trying to deplatform you? Knowing that you can't be deplatformed.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I've kind of structured my life in a way that I I can't be deplatformed. Ultimately, uh, I mean, I'm a college professor at Chapman. Somebody could harass me there and try to get me fired, I suppose. Um, and you know, I, I had this monthly column for Scientific American for 18 years, which just came to an end because they're, they're redesigning the magazine and they're swapping out all the columnists. So there, there's there's nothing personal there uh, due to anybody telling them to fire me. But they could have tried. I, I know that they. People did, actually, uh, and they ignored that. But for the most part, yeah, I'm pretty safe. I do worry about people that um, have one job. In the media, say, and they get deplatformed or they get attacked on social media, and there's real possibility they could be economically shattered by by these people that are are trying to deplatform them. So I, again, that's why I push back so hard about this. Like the the case with uh, Pete Boghossian and the grievance studies hoax, you know, of the three that did it, he's the only one that has a real job that could be fired, and he might be fired. I think he probably will be, actually.
1: And uh, those are the writers. wrote ridiculous papers that were submitted to journals, and some of which were accepted by peer-reviewed journals about things like dog humping and so forth. Right. yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it comes back to free speech, really. The only way to know if you've gone off the rails, if you're wrong, is to listen to what other people have to say. And you know, the social justice warrior movement, this, at least the way it began, it should have been correct. It should have been, you know, these people are saying these outlandish things, let's challenge them. But challenging them in the way like, go ahead and make your claim and we're going to check, we're going to fact check it. That's different than, you know, we're going to deplatform you and try to prevent you from saying these claims and then get you fired. That's a completely different thing.
1: We often talk about so-called social justice warriors One of the responses we get from people on the other side, which I think has validity, is you talk so much about social justice warriors. Why aren't you talking equally about the threat from the right, from people who support Donald Trump? Uh, Donald Trump, of course, uh, has has explicitly targeted the media. Is this something that concerns you?
2: It does concern me, yes, very much. Uh, I haven't spoken publicly that much about Trump simply because N plus one, when the N is so huge, uh, you know, there's already... Uh, extremely articulate people writing and talking about the problems with Trump, particularly people like David Frum, who's a Republican. And, you know, there's plenty of other Republicans. or someone like Andrew Sullivan, who's a libertarian. You know, I don't really need to add one more to that. But the larger picture is... We expect people on the right to act like that. You know, that's not a surprise when, you know, the alt-right or the KKK or or the tiki torch-wielding, you know, nut jobs show up in Charlottesville. We, we kind of expect that to happen. That's the way they've always acted. So um, there's a, there isn't a need to be surprised by that. Go, oh, my God, look what these people are doing. They've always done that. It, it, the, the shock here is that the people on the left are doing this. The people that claim to be anti-fascists are acting like fascists. And then and, and those are our people. Those are the people that should be supporting free speech and liberty. Uh, and they're the ones that are illiberal in their approach. So that, that's why we are calling them out on that.
1: 20 years ago, we often talked about government was what we should fear, the specter of Big Brother.
2: That kind of
1: idea of Big Brother controlling what we think and say seems strangely quaint now because it's largely corporations and universities and, and, and private actors who seem to have the most influence in deciding who gets to say what. Is this something you could have foreseen 20 years ago?
2: It's a concern. Uh, of course, there w- there was no social media 20 years ago. But, but universities did start down this path in the 80s. I've been a professor since 1980, and I remember this happening pretty early on with the race and IQ, even before Charles Murray and the bell curve, which was 95, in the late uh, 80s, actually in the 70s, when Arthur Jensen published his famous paper about racial differences in IQ. And, and I was in college at the time, and I remember thinking, oh boy, because I was in in psychology, I'm not going to study this subject. Oh, I'll never get a job. Already I had a sense, even as a college student, that there are certain topics that are so radioactive in academia, I probably just wouldn't get hired, and if if I did, I could get fired. Um, So that, that, those were, and those are private universities as well as public. The the business that we're, we're on about now that Jordan, people like Jordan Peterson are riled up about, about postmodernism, infiltrating the sciences, that, that's not new. This happened in the 90s, in the, you know, in the 80s when, uh lit crit went through its postmodern movement and then it spilled over into history so i wrote about this in denying history you know this problem of saying there are no historical truths it, <laughs> that's only a couple steps away from therefore <clears throat> we don't think the holocaust happened <clears throat> it's a legitimate theory no um And then uh, it spilled over in the 90s into the biological sciences and the physical sciences, which led to Alan Sokal's famous hoax. The science wars kind of got resolved by the late 90s and early 2000s. And I thought, well, okay, we're done with that. So I I think the result of that was just a lot of us pushing back. And that kind of squelched that movement. Why it came back now, Okay, I think there's several threads going on here. Yeah, social media is a big one. Uh, but as Jonathan Hype and, and Greg Lukianoff point out in the Coddling of the American Mind, you know, there's these other threads about these are iGeners or Gen Z, and they are a different. They have a different temperament, different upbringing. These are the helicopter parent, helicopter parented children that are more sensitive and they're more fragile, and so it, it it's easier for them to equate dangerous idea an idea being dangerous and therefore a form of violence and so on, and also by by, say, 2014, 2015, when this all began, now a lot of those students back in the, say, 80s and 90s, they're professors now that were into the political correct movement, and now they have power.
1: You became famous as a debunker earlier in your career. You were sort of of an anti-magician.
2: And yet now
1: some of your writing is passionate political commentary, which has nothing to do with that sort of thing. You wrote an essay for Quillette a couple of months ago which I thought was an extremely powerful manifesto about common ground between the right and the left. You endorsed the welfare state, and you said that the right is gonna to have to make peace with the welfare state. You also said that the left is gonna to have to make peace with individual rights and not see everything as a group-on-group struggle. Could you tell me a little bit about this transformation to, to someone who, who seems to care deeply about the social contract? Is this something that was always embedded in your thinking,
2: Yes, it, it certainly was. Uh, I, I started thinking about politics when I was in college. Uh, as an undergraduate at Pepperdine University, for example, um, everyone was reading Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, and I thought, oh, God. It, it's kind of a late teens, early 20s phase. So, I, you know, of course I did that. But, you know, setting aside the you know extreme versions of that uh, kind of libertarian view, which I ultimately rejected and moved on to a more centrist or classical liberal or something like that position, which I am now, it was always there, and, uh, but our, our mission statement with Skeptic Magazine, for example, for my day job, is you know, we, we pretty much stay out of politics because there's so many other people that do that. For me, and the reason I'm writing about it more now, is that I don't want to just keep writing the same books over and over, you know, debunking astrologers or, or conspiracy theories or whatever. We've done that a lot. So. But a political claim is, in principle, no different than any other claim that, that's testable. I mean if you say this tax rate is better than that tax rate okay show me why you think that or there's a problem with liberal democracies and here's why okay that's a that's a rational argument that should be open to rational uh, inquiry and debate, just like any other claim of a conspiracy theorist or an alternative cancer-cure person or whatever, anything. So it's all just knowledge. And and the the problem, back to the free speech, the problem is that we are so easily fooled, including fooling ourselves, self-deception and all that research, that... You have to be able to dialogue with other people. You have to be open to criticism. It's the only way to know if you're getting closer to the truth or moving further away from the truth. So, to me, this, you know, if you say something like, "Well, the libertarian position," or "trickle down economics," or "Marxist," uh, you know, political ideology, uh, if any of these, these are no different than any other scientific claim. They may be harder to test, but if you think about like all the experiments that have been run for the last 10,000 years around the world uh, of political and economic systems those are experiments you know they ran the experiment let's look at the results now they're complicated it's not quite as simple as a physics experiment maybe there's more variables but this is what social scientists do let's control for these factors and look at this one variable to see what happens when it goes up or down what are the effects and um, that's just science and uh, so to me, I'm, that's why I've kind of moved in this direction. Skeptic is still largely a science magazine, uh, and that's why I'm, I'm grateful for uh, Colette kind of opening this avenue of this area of empirically testable and rationally debatable political, economic, social subjects and claims that are, in principle, no different than any others.
1: But there's a paradox here, which is that some of the most terrifying ideologies were based on the conceit of, of scientific provability.
2: Well, we have to be careful about that, of course, but I I would... Uh, point out that those movements you describe were' not really scientific they they may have said we're doing science or something like that uh, it, just like the eugenics movement said you know we're, we're just rational scientists here uh, but in fact those movements can be tracked back to 19th century romanticism the sort of blood and soil this idea of a, of a pure blood pure race a na- a, na- a national character based on your geography and and your and your now we would say genetics or DNA and so on. Those are, those are, those are very romantic ideas, not sci- they don't come from the Enlightenment or the Scientific Revolution. They come from a different strand that pushed back. that was a sort of an anti-enlightenment movement in the 19th century. So um, uh, uh, but nevertheless, we can treat the claims. if you say, you know, like in, in, the, in the 20s there was a big debate between Trotsky and Lenin. About uh, Trotsky and Stalin, uh, about when Lenin was about to die, it's like who's going to come to power, and and their debate was you know what what's the proper form of communism you know international or national, and you know Trotsky wanted to make it an international movement, and Stalin just wanted to keep it in Russia and so on. And then they had, the debate just was, who, who should we kill to get to this this, this promised land? And, uh, and of course, ultimately Trotsky lost that debate and then was assassinated by, by Stalin's men. So the problem here is if you're aiming for utopia, which is never attainable, and the only thing holding you back from reaching it are these people over here, so we have to eliminate them, which is pretty easy to get people to think. Uh, like with the trolley problem, you, you can get most people to, to agree it's okay to flip the switch to kill one person, innocent person, to save these five people. Uh, most people will do it. They say they would do it. And so how easy would it be to scale that up? Well, we got to kill these one million Jews in order to achieve this utopian state where the five million people get to live a better life. But those Jews are holding us back. we got to eliminate them, and then you're a few steps away from genocide.
1: You've met a lot of extremely intelligent people, I'm guessing, who believe a lot of crazy things. There's that old anti-elitist conservative adage that It'd be better to be ruled by the first hundred names in the phone book than the faculty at Harvard University. <laughs> what are your views on the relationship between intelligence and common
2: sense? Well, as we say in in statistics, they're orthogonal; they're they're independent of each other. And, and if anything, being intelligent means you can you are even better at. Um, employing cognitive biases like the confirmation bias. You know, highly educated, well-read, intelligent people are really good at deceiving themselves by gathering data that only supports their views and ignore all the other data. They're just better at that. Or as I like to say, smart people believe weird things because they're better at doing this.
1: One of the effects of Trump's presidency has been a, a radicalization on both sides, including a radicalization on the left, arguably has been more powerful than what you've seen on the right in your intellectual universe skeptic magazine your readers have you seen that hardening of positions on both sides as a result
2: of trump part of the problem is that the uh, on the left is that that all that political correctness social justice warriors safe spaces microaggressions all that uh and, and also that kind of sense of elitism uh, that you know the flyover country, the deplorables. You know, I I know a lot of conservatives. A lot of my cycling friends are conservative, for example. So it's nothing to do with science or anything that like that. And they are um, th- they pulled the Trump handle in the po- polling booth as really just a fuck you to all you elitists who think you're so much better than me. You're not. And they 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 they, they watch Bill Maher and they listen to the comedians making fun of conservatives. And it's like, you know what, fuck you. I mean, if you want another four years of Trump, Social justice warriors keep doing what you're doing because there, you know, there's tens of millions of conservatives watching, going, "All right, you want that? We're gonna, we're gonna give it to you." And, and again, why, you know, so why aren't we criticizing the right now? Well, we did back in the '80s because that's what they were doing. They were the ones in power that were doing this stuff. You know, the so-called moral majority, which they say was neither, <laughs> uh, but they were, they were a majority enough that they, they had a lot of power and they were able to influence political elections. Um, and yeah, there were tons of us pushing back. The left really then I think had some effects such that by the 90 they got Clinton elected and, and the pendulum swung the other way. So yeah, there's nothing new in this in that sense, but it's dangerous. And, but again, it's surprising because the left is not supposed to be in favor of censorship of speech and so on. So they're really just showing themselves to be really not so different from the right in that regard.
1: I noticed that you are talked about a lot on social media, and it doesn't seem to have changed your basic personality or your message. Have you had a strategy for balancing your long-term projects like your books, your stewardship of a magazine, with sound bites that you emit on social media?
2: Honestly, I have no idea what I'm doing on social media. Like most people, I'm just kind of bouncing around trying to figure it out. Uh, I do Twitter and not much Facebook. I just got back on Instagram after Joe Rogan talked me into it the other day. And I don't know. Uh, I, to me, it's kind of a platform for – it's a marketing platform. It's a, it's a, a tool to say, here's – got this conference coming up or I'm speaking here or there or whatever i got a new article on Quillette. Here, read it. It's, it's also a way to reach out to people and just have little darts, you might call them, uh, just to throw out a, a quick comment on something when I don't have time to write a 700-word essay or a 3,000-word article that takes you know, t- take some time. Um, I think it's just a way of kind of expressing how you feel at that moment. That should be okay. Get a lot of pushback. I don't know. I try not to read the comments too much because, you will just go insane. If it doesn't, if it looks like I don't care, that's not not the case. Uh, You know, it bothers me when, you know, when, when people attack. It does because I'm human like anybody else would feel that way. But you have to just pretty much ignore it. When you
1: say social media is a good way to just say what you think at any given time, It takes me to a comment that a university administrator made to me when I asked him about the environment on campus. He told me 30 years ago, students would write back to their parents maybe once a week to tell them how things are going. Now they text their parents 20 times a day. Decades ago, it was about the climate. Now it's about the weather. And it's because of that instant (coughs) phenomenon that a parent will get a message from a kid who's freaking out about a test or... Or some problem in the dorm and the parent will phone the administrator and the administrator will have to act. But are are we part of the problem? Like when we go on social media and we freak out over something that we won't be freaked out over a couple of hours later, is it the thing where we're reporting on the weather instead (laughs) of the climate? Like are we part of the problem that, that that college administrator was describing?
2: Yeah, maybe. <laughs> we might be. It's too soon to tell. I mean, this whole thing, like in a decade, 25 years from now, there may be no social media. The whole thing may just just disappear and be replaced by something else. Who knows? I, I really don't know. Again, I don't know what we're doing. I'm not sure anybody really does. You know, we're all kind of groping our way into the dark, wondering what's next and just trying to trying to participate, uh, but it is a participatory process, so I, I think there's benefits to it. There's a lot, there's upside to social media that, you know, we don't want to overlook that. It's fun to bash it, but, the, you know, the, the, it's given a lot of interesting people a voice uh, that they couldn't have had before because there were only so many media outlets, so this whole intellectual dark web movement thing that I'm supposedly a part of is, it really, it's the only thing in common is that we all have a voice on alternative media uh, that we promote because, it's harder to get a voice on the mainstream shows, uh, Hannity or, or or Anderson Cooper on CNN or, or any of the mainstream newspapers. Only so many people have a column or a, a chance to give their opinions. So when you guys at Quillette found these young writers, you know these are really some pretty good writers and and really sharp thinkers. I'm amazed at how much talent is out there. And take someone like Dave Rubin or Joe Rogan, you know, if if before social media, they they would very unlikely ever get their own show on a major network, just three, four networks and and just a couple of shows for that kind of thing. And they're all directed and controlled. This is an opportunity for, uh, you know, the millions of people who are smart, thoughtful to have a voice. I, I think that's great. Final
1: question. Let me ask you about the name of your magazine, Skeptic. Skeptic is a weird kind of word. Because on one hand, it means somebody who is questioning authority, uh, which we we teach everybody to do, we question dogmas, a skeptic is somebody who isn't taken in by received wisdom. And yet, when I was doing my my book on conspiracy theories, a lot of the craziest people I met considered themselves skeptics, and considered themselves rigorous skeptics, who who followed the evidence and, and were, were often very smart people who nominally used the tools of science. Does yeah. the word skeptic mean the same thing to you now as it did 20 or 30 years ago?
2: Yeah, when we founded the magazine in '92, it was like, what do we call it? And you know, science was taken, and and I didn't want some cumbersome long thing. like Discussing this, you know, the rational, scientific, skeptic, reasonable. You know, yeah, heirs to the Enlightenment. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like no, so skeptic is just one word, short. Uh, it, it's it's a short enough word you can print it in large print like on the top of a magazine, which at the time was it was just print that was it. So you know, we had to stand out on a bookstore Uh, because, you know, we're in every bookstore in North America, what fewer left. (laughs) But immediately I saw, oh boy, this word is provocative because, you know, the Holocaust deniers. We're Holocaust skeptics. We're good skeptics, Shermer. You're a good skeptic. We're good skeptics. You're just on the wrong side of the skeptical debate. And the climate deniers, they say the same thing today. Look, we're just climate skeptics. We're just applying the tools of skeptical science to show that this is a bunch of bullshit. Okay, so anybody can use the word. question is, is what's the preponderance of evidence? You can always find somebody to say, I'm the skeptic of that particular. Claim whatever it is, big bang. There are big bang skeptics. There are evolution skeptics. I heard one the other day on Joe Rogan that there are space skeptics. People have never heard this one. That even the flat earthers kicked them out. You know, there's no such thing as outer space. So you know you've got off the rails if the flat earthers think you're you're crazy. So yeah. So what's the criteria? You know, this is what Carl Sagan called is you know baloney detection kit. You know what kinds of questions can we ask to see which kind what kind of skepticism is this? So like with the climate debate, for example, there's this you know meme going around about the 97%. Okay, what does that actually mean? It's in support of uh, global warming is real and human cause. Well it's it's a study done with uh, on many thousands of peer-reviewed scientific papers related to climate change, in which ninety-seven percent of the of the papers, not the authors, the papers, concluded that it's real and human cause. So well, what about the 3%? Maybe they're the those skeptics are the ones that are right because, you know, after all, remember Galileo and, and Newton and Darwin and so on, and, and you know, they were the tiny... Uh, minority pushing back against the the dogmatic uh, majority. Okay, maybe, but probably not, because the convergence of evidence from the 97 percent from all those different fields point to the same direction. They don't know each other. They work in different sciences. They go to different conferences. So it's not like they're meeting in to get in cahoots to converge their claims to one. The three percent converge to nothing. They're all over the board. So that that's one That's one tool.
1: Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with Quillette. Good luck with The Skeptic. You're welcome, and thank you.
0: If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you'll find more content.